0: Big story this morning. San Francisco residents recalled three
1: members of the school board.
2: Yeah, after parents criticized them for, in their minds, putting progressive politics over the needs of their children.
1: While the Biden White House waits nervously to see if Russia invades Ukraine, perhaps in the next few days, the biggest political story this week that took place was as local as it gets in San Francisco, where voters, by an overwhelming margin, recalled three school board members. Why? Incompetence and frustration, to be sure, over the board's decision to keep public schools shut down all last year over COVID, even as schools elsewhere were opening. But perhaps even more, the recall vote was a rejection of the board members' progressive woke agenda. In the name of racial justice, the board was moving to rename schools, even those named after Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. It had ended merit-based admission to one of the city's elite high schools because it led to too many Asian American students and not enough African Americans and Hispanics getting in. That vote has been seen as a wake-up call for Democrats who in the eyes of some have too often embraced the progressive agenda that has alienated voters across the political spectrum. We'll talk to Washington Post columnist Matt Bai on why the WOKE agenda has alienated him and what the radical drift of both political parties could mean for the country's future on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. So help, so, help so help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help
2: me God.
1: I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have to say, Matt Bai's timing for this really eye-popping piece he wrote in The Washington Post about why he rejects where both parties are right now couldn't have been better because it came just as this San Francisco recall vote was taking place. And I think if anything, when people read the details of why this recall election was taking place and the kinds of things that San Francisco bore was doing, it was the kind of thing that would just, as I said, alienate a lot of voters. It's not. That's a progressive agenda that I think overwhelmingly the American public doesn't accept. And the fact that 70 percent, more than 70 percent of the voters in the most liberal city in the country voted to recall these board members sends a pretty powerful signal for Democrats
2: across the country. Well, everyone is starting to call it the year of the angry parent. And, uh, you know, we saw it obviously in in Virginia in the Youngkin race. And, you know, what got a lot of attention in that race was, you know, it started with masks and school closings, but then a lot of these parents, you know, have also sort of been radicalized and also stirred up by Republican um, candidates over, critical race theory and, you know, then book bans and and all these kind of hot button social issues. But you're right. You know, I think it is a, an indicator if so many clearly liberal and progressive voters in San Francisco uh, sort of have had enough. And what it, it raises the question as to whether, you know, they're going to end up voting uh, for Democratic candidates. They're not going to leave their party for the most part. But what it does tell you is that You know, a lot of voters in the suburbs, women voters in the suburbs who voted for Biden are not necessarily going to vote for Biden the next time around or vote for Democratic candidates more to the point. But it's not just
1: the, the, you know, suburban women, soccer moms, whatever. I mean, this is a vote in the city of San Francisco. But that's my point, Mike. That's exactly
2: what I was saying, which is Uh, the fact that it's happening there means that the political implications for Democrats is with Independent or moderate voters in the suburbs—they're not going to lose those voters.
0: Honestly, I mean, there's a really substantial chance that everyone is completely overreading the the motivating forces behind this San Francisco election. I mean, it—I granted, it it absolutely suits your narrative drive that there's a you know kind of anti wokeism backlash amongst you know suburban moms, but the San Francisco election board elections and recalls are highly particular and highly local. And what was really an issue in San Francisco was just the competence of the San Francisco election board and an incredible wave of frustration about the way the COVID pandemic has been treated and the way parents are incredibly frustrated about the whole election system as a whole. And then there was a little smidgen of concern about the renaming of schools in where, where do you San get, Francisco.
1: Where, where do you get there was just a smidgen of concern about
0: where that? Where do you get where do you the, get the other
1: version? I think the optics, Mike? the optics of them keeping the schools shut where down do you during get the COVID. other version. You get the version by more than 70 percent of the voters rejecting the, the most radical members of that school board. How they didn't th- target moderates. Uh, if there are any on there, they targeted the ones that were most outspoken. That were most woke.
0: Mike, you do not you do not have insight into the minds of 70 the 70% of the voters in San Francisco who did this. You don't live in San Francisco. You haven't been following San Francisco Board Board of Election Issues. I mean You're attempting to read something into a local election that you, like, literally don't know enough
2: about to say. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that we are more than eight months away from the midterm elections, and there are a lot of other issues out there that could end up being as important as what we're seeing right now in, you know, in these you know, in these fights over school uh, I- issues. For example, Roe versus Wade may be overturned. You've got, obviously, inflation. You've got all sorts of other is- economic issues that are of concern. A war to in to Europe voters. about to
1: break out. War, yeah. war in Europe. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's a that, little early right.
2: to to conclude that this is going to drive politics for the next eight months. But, you know, when parents are concerned about the well-being of their children. That's potent in politics. And so it bears watching.
1: All right. Well, before we get to um, Matt Bai, we do have to deal with the uh, Russia issue. Uh, When we taped our last episode on Monday, the predictions are we were going to get an invasion this week, perhaps by Wednesday. That didn't happen. The president just said he now does expect an invasion in the next coming days. And certainly there's pretty alarming reports about the Russians pumping out disinformation about supposed Ukrainian atrocities and attacks that could be used to justify an invasion. But this is pretty high stakes. And, you know, there is the question about the credibility of the White House if Putin ends up not invading.
2: I think they've spoken to this. I think they've said they would rather you know, make these uh, statements based on their intelligence, what they really believe in an effort to try to keep it from happening, Then worry about being criticized for war not actually breaking out. They've been asked this question about their credibility. Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, has been explicit about why they're doing it and why they think this is the right path. You know, listening to Biden speak where he was once again disclosing all of the you know, kind of uh, the false justifications for why they would invade, you know, this blaming the Ukrainians for the shelling of a kindergarten when actually it was probably Russian-backed separatist forces. It felt very much like Biden is trying to position himself for after an invasion so they can very clearly say Russia did this based on a pretext and deception and so that they can kind of win the information war after an invasion has taken place.
0: It does feel like they're kind of wheels within wheels in terms of the way the the kind of the assessment and the communications of the assessments of the situation are going on. There are different audiences, the American public at large, Putin specifically, the Russian population at large and the communications with each of them are different. And and it actually also seems as if one of the weapons in this kind of communications or disinformation war that's going on right now is one of the weapons at stake is the level of trust that each nation has or that the the population of each nation has in their own leaders. And if that is a weapon, then Putin is better armed than Biden is because- Mm -hmm. The, the, the Russian population trusts and believes what he says more than
1: the American population trusts and believes what Biden says. Well, interesting, um, interesting point there. I had not uh, uh, thought about that. But of course, the Russians don't have quite as much access to the range of information. Nor does it have quite have as quite available. as <laughs> quite as
0: stroppy and uh, yeah. a, as a free press as we yeah. have.
2: I still don't see how. Putin climbs down from this. I don't, you know, there, there has been some talk of some kind of diplomatic resolution where the United States is going to stay firm in its its open door NATO membership policy. They're not going to say, look, Ukraine is never going to uh, join NATO. But there have been some hints, some suggestions that they would be OK with the Ukrainians saying we will abandon our ambition to join NATO. And, and that would be a way to resolve this crisis. But boy, I think that is really politically fraught, because Biden then opens himself up to, to charges that, you know, maybe he pressured the Ukrainians to do that. It emboldens Putin. Where is he going to do this next, that the Ukrainians would make this decision with a, uh, a gun to their head? And I just think that that becomes a really a uh, big big problem, and so I, I don't see how we get out of this. I just don't see it. Well, you
1: mean we get out of it, or Putin gets out of it? You started well, Putin, out saying well, you didn't
2: see Putin, how Putin was. But, yeah, get out right. But yeah. Putin. But if Putin it can't get out of it, then we're all we're all in it with him. <laughs>
1: Putin undoubtedly feels
0: like he's got the upper hand. He's got his his uh, his nation and his population generally behind him. He doesn't think that the sanctions or the blowback that we can the sanctions that we can impose upon him are anywhere close to uh, really dangerous. He feels like he probably has the the stronger hand in terms of kind of economic retaliation against us. He's he's more willing to engage in information war and cyber war against us than we are. He just there's nothing in terms of his arsenal that feels weaker than ours, right? And now. and
1: I think actually, you know, probably the most, you know, alarming thing we heard when we did the interview the other day with Dmitry Alperovich was the economic potential economic consequences for the United States if we impose sanctions and Russia retaliates by cutting off titanium for jet engines and neon for semiconductors. Um, I mean, what Al Pembrovich said is, you know, he could send inflation into double digits in this country, which would have a huge impact and is something I assume the White House is worried about. Just one last quick point we should make about the uh, very bad week our former president had. Just uh, we were trying to keep a list of everything that took place this week. A New York state judge ruled that He and his family must sit for civil depositions with the New York attorney general who is uh, investigating him on civil matters. His accounting firm, Mazars, dropped him as a client after pulling back and saying that its previous uh, certifications of his financial statements were no longer operative. Uh, The National Archives just wrote a letter to Congress saying that it found classified documents in the material that Trump removed from the White House and took with him to Florida. So that would be a violation of the handling of federal records. And Judge Maida here in the district just ruled on Friday that a civil suit against Trump and Republican members of Congress who were part of the uh, rally on January 6th could be sued by Democratic members of Congress. So all in all, on the legal front, it was not a good week for Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, one of the most interesting things about the civil uh, depositions that are about to occur is that Trump Trump and his family have to know that they're occurring within the context of a parallel criminal investigation. And so when they are deposed in the near term, they have basically two options. One is answer all of the questions, and know that whatever you say can be used in the criminal prosecution or take the fifth and know that your decision to take the fifth can be used as an, as a negative inference against you in the civil case. It is a very unpleasant situation as a civil litigant to find yourself in. And they just walked right into it and will have to deal with it in the next
1: few weeks. I mean, I can't imagine that. He would testify and his family would testify with the criminal investigation by the New York DA still open. And Letitia James, the the New York Attorney General, saying she is working with the prosecutors who are trying to indict him criminally. So at the end of the day, you know, maybe his best option is the fifth, although he'll certainly appeal and appeal to federal court, and this will wind up in the Supreme Court before. He ever,
2: but what is his argument? Uh, what What arguments has has he made that he shouldn't have to testify? Has he raised certain immunities? What I what I saw was that he uh, his main argument is that Letitia James is politically uh, is biased against him because she's a Democrat.
0: Usually, in these kind of overlapping civil and criminal investigations, you can actually delay the civil depositions pending the criminal investigations. And and that's the argument that they did try to make, but unfortunately they didn't succeed in, because one of the things they did is they tried to kind of soft pedal the criminal investigation. They couldn't persuade the judge that the pending criminal investigation was so significant and so serious that the civil deposition ought to be put off. They failed to make that case and all of a sudden found themselves in the middle of, a civil investigation that they can't get out of.
1: I think the strongest argument they can make, and Victoria, correct me if you think I'm wrong, which you often do, obviously, um, is uh, that under New York state law, you cannot be compelled to testify in a grand jury in a criminal inquiry of you, right? So this is for all intents and purposes a way of getting around that and using his testimony for a criminal case. And so, you know, they can make the point that this is a, you know, this is a clever yeah. dodge by James to get testimony that could, they could they could not otherwise
2: get.
0: And that's exactly what they, the point that they failed to make and having failed to make, the,
2: yeah. First go around. But this a basis yeah. for for, for basis appeal. For, would she, and, and it does sound actually reasonable. I mean, would she be able to take like the testimony that she took, she'd be able to present that, or the district attorney would be able to t- take that testimony and put it before the grand jury because that does seem a little sketchy. Yeah, so, they can they
0: can they can certainly use his his testimony, but they can yeah. use his testimony in any case.
1: All right, we got other things to talk about, and our uh, old friend Matt Bai waiting to join us. So let's get to it. We are now joined by our old colleague, Matt Bai. Uh, Matt uh, worked with Danny and I at Newsweek for many years, then at Yahoo. He is now a Washington Post columnist who's written a provocative column under the headline, I reject both parties' ideas of Americanism and I'm not the only one. Matt, welcome back to Skullduggery. Always good to see you guys, even in your your weird uh, weird (laughs) Zoom spaces. We don't have to get too graphic. Um, (laughs) Look, um, that was uh, quite a um, eyebrow-raising column because you jumped full force into an area that um, we're often, or I'm often criticized (laughs) for, uh, both sizes you know, suggesting there is equivalence in the pitfalls and the contradictions and hypocrisies of both political parties. What drove you to want to write this now? And how do you defend yourself against the inevitable attacks I'm sure you are getting, particularly from the left? Really? Is there a thing about both sides and false (laughs) Yeah. Um,
3: You know, it's a funny thing. I was just thinking about this this morning, Mike, because I you know, obviously, I could go on and on about that whole that whole method of argument on the left, which is you know you're you're equi- you're always equivocating, uh, you know, equalizing the parties, both sides of them, which is really a way, uh, you know, it, it can be true at times in the media and started out probably as a valid critique, but it's generally used as a blunt instrument now to beat the complexity out of people. It's like you know you're not allowed you know you're not allowed to have that um, complexity because you're equating the two. And in in this column. I actually, uh, you know, went out of my way to say I get that you're going to scream both sides of them. Let me be clear: I think one party right now is clearly a better alternative than the other. But that doesn't mean I have to be jazzed about it, and it doesn't mean that a lot of people out in the country are jazzed about it. It's actually the wording I used, and still, you know, when I go to social media, which you should never do, and look at the comments, people just didn't even read; they just gloss over that. It, it's the one, it's the hammer in the, it's the hammer they have, and so everything's a nail. So it's, you're equating the parties, even though you know I very clearly said. I wasn't, but I am frustrated. And what drove me to do it now is just, um, look, I'm in the conversation. I have this column at the Post. I think, I think you have to be honest uh, with readers. I don't think much about what people are going to hate or love or what they're going to say. You guys know that. I always try to just speak about what's making me passionate at the moment. That makes for the best columns. And I've been really dispirited by the political, by the, by the, particularly by the interpretation of what it means to be American on both the right and the left, which I think leaves out an awful lot of us who believe in the ideals we were taught about the country and increasingly find that we have no political home.
2: I just want Matt to walk through, I think before we get into, I think he needs to walk through his arguments about both of these parties. So, because I think we need to step back because you lay it out in your piece and you do make the point that between the two parties, one, one is more destructive to the ideals that we have always believed in than the other. But just tell us about your alienation from Republicans and and then from the left, from Democrats?
3: Well, as you know, Danny, it's a double-length column, so I'll just take the next 10 minutes. No, it's, uh, look, I mean, in a nutshell, I've written for years now about my deep objection to what the Republican Party has become and its interpretation of uh, what America is. I, not just because, as I say in the column, it's more of a celebrity fan club than a political party right now, and that it it does attack the foundations of the democracy. I think that's now clear. And as I, as I said, that's not something I ever thought I'd say about political party, but here we are. But also, you know, because uh, the the party of Donald Trump is very identity based and focused. It plays to a mythical white heritage in the country. It claims that we all have a common heritage that we do not have. It imparts in a 100 different ways the idea that if you're not part of that heritage, you're less American. If you look different, you're less American. If you came here more recently, you're less American. I take that. Really seriously, I'm one of the the majority of Americans whose families were immigrants in this country, uh, who have at times been seen as less American. My my in-laws are Japanese American. They spent the war years in Manzanar and, and fighting in a segregated war unit. So I don't, you know, I take that very seriously. I think it's very dangerous and wrong, and I've been strong in opposing it. My my problem with the democratic response to that, the response on the left increasingly, is it becomes a sort of what I call a bizarro image of that right that in opposing an, an ideology that would define us all by identity the left has to my mind inexplicably defined us by identity there's you know the 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 hot intellectual ideas the the books the culture all of the um, all of the sort of underpinning intellectual underpinning on the left revolves now around sort of Dicing people up by demographic, by race, uh, you know, by uh, you know, forcing a what they what is continually called a reckoning uh, in the country, and saying as Ibram Kendi says in in uh, How to Be an Anti Racist, which is probably the most popular book on campus and on the left, right. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. I reject that. I don't think that's the same thing as having policies like affirmative action, which I believe in. I think that's more of, uh, that's more of, of the kind of thinking and policy agenda that drove uh, former colonies when they drove out the empires and, and turned their social orders completely on their heads. I think it's dangerous. Uh, and so uh, in, in both cases, it's defining Americanism by identity and assigning sort of values to people. It's not in keeping with what I think, uh, and this is, this is the key point I'm making. It's not in keeping with liberalism. I consider myself a liberal. It's not in keeping with the 20th century understanding what it means to be liberal. And if anything could come out of this conversation, I would hope that journalists would stop throwing the term liberal around when talking about the left, because it means something and it doesn't mean what we're, we're hearing from the left now. And, and to, you know, to go back to your question, I wrote the piece largely because I think there are so many people who feel the way I do and maybe either can't articulate it or aren't sure what to do with it. Um, and, you know, that's my job.
0: So I just wanted to follow up on this because it, you, on the one hand, you talk a lot about the left, but your column talks about the Democratic Party. So there's they, they are uh, possibly two different things. Uh, and the Democratic Party, uh, you know, you in your column, you say that it, it is a party that would grade our worthiness as people on a sliding scale of identity. So I'm just sort of curious of the Democratic legislative priorities that you see today, Build Back Better, Infrastructure Bill, Voting Rights Bills, Healthcare for All. How do you see that party grading our worthiness as people on a sliding scale of identity effect, infecting actual democratic legislative priorities or the party as a whole.
3: It's interesting, Victoria. I do talk about that in the piece. And if that's, it's funny that you quote that. If that's actually the line, I probably should have used movement instead of party. That's probably an oversight on my part. So thanks for pointing that out. But you know, I, I, uh, you know, it is a, it's a hazard of writing uh, and thinking about politics is where you draw the line between movements and parties, you know, all, always. Uh, it's true on the right and the left. I think, you know, what I say in the piece, I, I do take a moment in the piece, a, a fairly long moment to say, hey, I think the policies of the Biden administration are, uh, are good. And, uh, and generally, I like him as a president and like his agenda. But there, as I describe it, I think in the piece, there's a, a fire raging in the party that I can't ignore, uh, that uh, there's a drumbeat, a, a chorus, if you will, on the left. That is where all the energy is in the party. That I think, I think clearly is where the most passion is among the activist base. That determines uh, a lot of the, the 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 rhetoric and the agenda in Congress uh, and affects the White House. That I I can't. That for me is kind of a deal breaker. It doesn't mean I wouldn't vote Democratic. I'm pretty clear about that. It, it just means. For me, that would keep me from being a Democrat right now. And I think it's going to have that effect on a lot of Americans, which is the point, because that cultural storm that you see on campus, that you see online, that you see among the the interest groups on the left, including a range of of issues, right? I mean, uh, that people are experiencing in their workplaces, if they work for uh, liberal organizations, Uh, there there I go, I did it, leftist organizations, let's say. I think I think that atmosphere is is kind of repulsive to a lot of uh, Americans and, and it makes you feel unwelcome. I think, you know, it's one of the points I make is that not only do I think as a liberal, I don't belong in today's Democratic Party driven by that leftist movement. I don't think I'm welcome there. I, in fact, I think the column makes the, reaction to the column makes <laughs> after clear, this column,
1: here. you definitely won't be
3: welcome. Uh, and this is a, it's an unusually personal piece for me, as you know. I mean, you guys were you've been forced to read a lot of my stuff, you know.
0: I I mean, like, I I really want to push back on this a little bit because I I, I sort of feel like if you were to walk into, you know, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders offices, you wouldn't find them, you know, kind of uh, judging your worthiness on a sliding scale of identity. And and so I'm a little bit curious about, you know, why you say that the Democratic Party isn't comparably dominated by a bunch of, you know, socialists and communists who want to you know, kind of take over, or rework our economic structure and don't pay all that much attention to race identity issues.
3: I think there's ample evidence, Victoria, that a party today, as it exists, a political entity is, is not driven top down. We no longer have people sitting in rooms deciding what's going to happen. And again, as I said in the column, the agenda is fine. So I'm not quibbling with the policy agenda. But the, the energy and the, 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 the sort of cultural revolution engulfing the party really has nothing to do with the top elected officials, and I, I guess the question I was asked, I, I do ask, is who's standing up to it? You know, I think there's been plenty of opportunity now for the president, who again I, I've always liked and respected, plenty of opportunity for the White House or the Hill leaders to say, you know, this is uh, th- this is not uh, this this is not who we want to be. This is not liberalism. And, and you know, let me just let me just say, because because to just to close this point, Victoria. I think there's a little bit of a double standard here, right? Because Republicans could say the same thing, right? Kevin McCarthy could say, where's my radical agenda? And and you would probably say, well, where are you standing up and saying Donald Trump doesn't speak for me? And Liz Cheney can have her her say. and, 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 you know, this is a vision of America I will not abide. The right has taken a pounding, and rightfully so, over the last several years for acquiescing to a cultural viewpoint that has engulfed the base of their party and following rather than leading. And most of that is not reflected in a policy agenda right now because they don't have one. So I would say let's apply the same
1: standard to the left. Well, hold on, hold on. But Matt, aren't we seeing a pushback in both parties against what you are describing on the Republican side just in the last couple of weeks, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, others, Republicans standing up saying, no, Donald Trump doesn't speak for us. Well, Mitt Romney, party. A, Mitt Romney okay. had the lonely voice in that All right, regard. But there are others, there are because other Republican senators that. who are increasingly speaking up. So you're seeing some pushback, obviously, Kevin McCarthy and, you know, in the House uh, and in the state houses, we're not, it hasn't gotten there yet. But I'm just saying we're starting to see some of it. And yeah. on the left, San Francisco recall vote, pretty significant development, I thought. Overwhelmingly, the most liberal city in the country by more than 70% voted to kick out three school board members who fully embraced the kind of woke agenda you're describing. I totally agree, Mike. But let's 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 let's
3: take those two things apart. On the Republican side, There've been a, there've always been a bunch of lonely voices. I think they deserve a lot of credit. I think history will remember Mitt Romney more kindly for the positions he's taken in the last couple of years than than as a presidential candidate. But I, you know, Mitch McConnell does whatever he thinks the polling dictates is going to keep him in his job. And Republicans, I don't think that's a moral stand. I see very little by way of spine or or answering to history can we take moral, moral stands out of a
1: conversation side. about politics i i think i'm going to both sides it now and say i don't see a lot of moral stands on either sides i think both parties are working to advance their political uh i think positions. liz cheney liz yeah.
2: cheney is taking a moral stand
3: Right? Absolutely no. As I said, well, there okay. Yeah, I there's think, one.
2: There's and,
1: one.
3: I, there are a handful of people who will get a lot, who yeah. deserve credit and will get right. credit. I'm not. I don't think that represents right now. We'll wait and see whether that's a real movement inside the party. I don't see it. And I'm, and and in the for the San Francisco thing, I agree with you, Mike. But I think it makes my point actually in the column quite nicely. You know, I think you had a what you have there is not a not a uh, pushback among officials. What you have there is a an uprising among. People living in that city, sending their kids to school and saying, this is not this is not representing us. We don't want to change the name of Abraham Lincoln High School. We don't want to change all the qualifications to 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 forcibly keep Asians out. That's not progress. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think that's a preview of what Democrats can expect to see in the midterm elections. And going forward, if somebody namely the president of the United States, doesn't get a handle on this and say, this is not the party we want to become. This is not. And, and let me tell you something. Anybody who's spent any time on campus, we, we all know, we can say, well, that's not the Democratic Party. We all know that the intellectual center of leftism in this country are the elite college campuses, right? And, and the academics who, who populate them. If you've spent any time on a campus in the last couple of years uh, on an elite college campus, you know this, is, uh, this isn't just ascendant, it's dominant, and it is a very different interpretation of free speech and free debate and sort of the American ideal than we recall from the left of our days. And anybody who says, well, that's a Republican canard, Republican, I, yeah, I see, so that's a Republican canard. Where is all this? Where is all this free expression? It's, it's not. Sometimes people say things you disagree with, and they're right, and they're right about this.
2: So, Matt, I wanted to ask you, you, you know, you're calling for political leaders to stand up to the Storm, I think, uh, cultural storm or, or whatever you call it. But you also say in the comment, you say there's a fire in his party, talking about Biden, that hasn't that he hasn't even tried to control and probably couldn't ex- extinguish it if he did. So you don't seem you seem pretty fatalistic about the ability of political leaders to actually change the dynamics here. And let me just before you answer that. I the, the kind of more cosmic question I have that relates to that is, you know, I always thought that we lived in kind of you know, historical cycles. There's certain forces that drive history in one direction. And then there's, then there's a course correction. There's a reaction to that. And lately it it feels like that doesn't happen anymore. It's just kind of a race to the bottom. And so I wonder how you, how you think about that.
3: That's a great question. That's a, it's a really interesting question to ponder, Danny. I mean, I, I do feel a little fatalistic Right now, but it's not a it's not a permanent fatalism. It's I guess I feel a little I feel like the moment is a bit of a runaway train on all sides. And as I say in the piece, I the think there's a vacuum. I think vacuums get filled and change comes. It's an interesting point you raise. You know, do we still have pendulum swings? Except for the crazy pendulum swings every two years, when, right? Or every when, ten when minutes the, when the electric yeah. throws everybody <laughs> yeah. out. You know. I think we're blinded to this because we live our lives on a different, I'm going to get a little philosophical for a second, but I think because we live our lives on a different metronome, we're a little blinded to the larger historical currents. It's like you're on social media or an email. Even those of us who try to keep some perspective are in so much more of an instantaneous hour to hour environment than we were a generation ago when we were using Palm pilots or whatever, you know? So, you know, I think there is a tendency to think, Oh my God, this never changes, right? This is you know what, But I think in the larger scope of history, I used to talk about this a little bit with President Obama, and I think he believes this. I believe he's right about this, that we do travel, I believe, as a country in the right direction. I know there's a great deal of doubt about that, particularly on the left right now. And I understand it and it makes me sad. But I do think the country has traveled and does travel in the direction of getting closer to its ideals than further away. I do think that in the large scope of history, we get it right more often than we don't. It's hard to talk about because that's of no solace to people in whose lifetimes we don't get it right, obviously, and you need to strive to get it better. But, you know, Obama's election being an excellent example, I think when you have some perspective, when there's 50 years of perspective for historians to write about, they will probably write that that was a major watershed for the country, that there was a backlash that tore the culture apart for years afterward. But that that backlash was just a step backward. History doesn't travel in a straight line that we've take. We'll take a step or two backward and we'll write ourselves and we will move forward toward the progress because the country is always moving forward toward progress or at least always has to this point. Um, I think the thing that worries me uh, is that when you erode or dismantle the institutions and you stop thinking of yourself as a a country governed by laws and values and institutions and start thinking of yourself as a country an amalgamation of identities that need to be viewed separately and, and equalized somehow or punished somehow, then I don't know if you're traveling that path toward progress. That
1: that's uncharted territory. Let me take you back to the San Francisco recall vote for a moment, because you mentioned that your in-laws are Japanese American. When you look at the um, uh, what to and my Americans, children, micro Japanese- and your American. children are Japanese American, right? So when you look at what the grounds for the recall was, it was you know number one, the incompetence of keeping the. Schools closed the whole year uh, because of COVID at a time when other schools were reopening. The silly renaming of, you know, Abraham Lincoln High School or, or even Diane Feinstein High School. God knows what she did that, you know, um, uh, got her crosswise with uh-huh. the uh, with the progressives. But the, third, you, thing, but yeah. <laughs> but the third thing was the, the Lowell School, which is the elite high school in San Francisco, which was merit based admissions, uh, you know, based on test scores and academic grades. They did away with that because too many Asian Americans were getting admitted to the school and not enough African Americans. Um, So they turned it into a lottery. You mentioned before you're a supporter of affirmative action, but you don't, but you resist the identity politics of, you know, Basing everything on someone's you know ethnic identity. What do you make of what they did in the Lowell School and ending, you know merit-based admissions for the purpose, it seems to me, for the sole purpose of cutting back on the number of Asian Americans who could go to the school? Well, the Supreme Court will soon
3: look at this, you know, on the college level as well, uh, in a similar situation. I mean, look, I guess where I, where I know now, when I talk about affirmative action, you know, it's it's a, this this is a this is a lost meaning in American life, right? But affirmative action is a specific. It's not a it's not actually a fungible concept that people can batter. It's a law, right? It's it's actually like it's a thing. It has meaning, and the meaning is you know almost directly applied in the case of the Supreme Court nomination that President Biden is about to make, which is to say, look, when you have equally qualified people, you should choose the minority candidate. Because for a very long time in the country, when you had equally qualified people, we did not, and that is an that is it is called affirmative action. I, I like that name because you know it's been misused and mischaracterized over the years. There are problems with it. Obama writes that in his book, but. It is affirmative in the sense that it seeks to provide opportunity to people who've been denied opportunity, which is something we do in myriad ways legally. And I think correctly, it is not based on denying opportunity to people because they've had too much, right? It doesn't say when you had, that would be what, you know, denial active denial action. When you have, you know, when you have equally qualified candidates, don't hire the white guy because he's already had his time, right? That is not what the law says. And so- You can you can argue whether that's just semantics, but I don't think it is because one is affirmative and one is is actually um, putative. Is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So in San Francisco, you know, I think that's what people are reacting to. I I'm I'm not look, I'm 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 liberal. I am and I'm for universities and high schools and programs. And, you know, we've had this fight in our county as well. I'm trying actively to broaden their pool of applicants to change their percentages, to be more representative, to attract and admit uh, candidates who would not have been attracted or admitted generations ago, that's entirely appropriate. And that's what separates me from conservatives who talk about a colorblind society. I don't believe we we can't be colorblind because to be colorblind is to be blind. But I don't think then you set out to create systems by which you are barring certain ethnicities or races because they've been too successful. That's not American is our right. And they're no less American, by the way. Asians, you know, newsflash, because they have different appearance or different ethnicity, different heritage, doesn't make them less American. And that's the whole point of all of this, right? That if you buy into the values and the laws of this country and the citizenship, and you, you live your life, as Bill Clinton said, and you play by the rules, you're an American and it
1: doesn't matter what you look like or where you came from. And you can't, that is liberalism and you can't lose sight of that. So I just, the intellectual contortions and contradictions on the left over this, I, I just find are so striking. You remember some months ago, we had those massage parlor shootings in Atlanta and Asian Americans were targeted or seemed to be targeted most for the most part. And there was a UN cry. This needs to be treated as a hate crime. Asian Americans are a minority and if you, you know, target them, it's a hate crime. But when it comes to the Lowell School, suddenly, you know, Asian Americans are the enemy. They need to be kicked out of the school. So another minority can be put in. I I find it a complete contradiction. Well, there's a term now in the language on the left. There's always a new term. You can pretty much
3: set your clock every month. There's a new term. And then there's a new term that's now been banned or changed that you can't use. Somebody used, but now you can't use because if you use it, you're, you know, you're prejudiced and you no longer can have the credibility in the conversation. This is a, it frustrates me. It's a way of like trying to control the conversation. We can say woke, but now you said woke and you said it in a critical way. So now the word's been misused and on and on we go. But there, you know, there's a conversation about white adjacent. I don't know if you've heard this phrase. Basically no, it says white basically adjacent? For Asians, South Asians. And South, by the way, Asian, when we talk about Asians is a ridiculous thing to talk about, right? We're just a giant continent. Everybody like comes from wildly different places. But okay, let's say Asian. The idea is that know as as the quote-unquote model minority that asians have been that they're basically white they don't have white privilege because they're not white but they're white adjacent they basically have all the privileges of being white therefore they should be denied one of
1: the school board members had said exactly that and it was cited as one of the rounds for yeah Yeah. i mean and what happens is
3: when you start dividing i think when you start looking at the world this way everybody gets it's dangerous for everybody because everybody gets their five minutes i mean we had the me too movement right which was all about women and the horrid mistreatment of women in the workplace and in society and you know we had a real moment of realization around this in the country that lasted like 6 months and then we moved on to the riots in the and women had, had their moment and now they need to move us so it's you know when you divide up the populace this way you're not considering the whole, right? It's like, it's my favorite F Scott Fitzgerald quote, right? The the test of a first rate intelligence is is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and retain the ability to function. These aren't even opposed (laughs) ideas, they're actually related, and we still can't keep them in mind at the same time. So we do on this podcast every week. To me, it's a world gone crazy. uh, And I, you know, it, it leaves no place for traditional liberalism. I think it's you know, I think it's a result of Trump and Trumpism. I think it's a react. I think it's an understandable reaction. I think he's brought a tremendous amount of damage on not just the political system, but on the culture. And I, th- I think we got to grapple with that.
0: So I, I just want to press back on something because I, I may have misheard you, uh, which is it, it sounded to me like you were saying that the Me Too movement was six months of conversation about the kind of the impact and the the negative of kind of harassment and sexism that predominates women in the workplace, and then it was over. And and that the problem with that is, is that it wasn't a conversation about society as a whole. Are you basically saying that any sort of conversation that focuses on a particular subgroup is, you know, anathema to a vision of America as an integrated whole? No, of course
3: not. I'm just saying we can balance a bunch of subjects at once. Right. we do not, you know, uh, white white women in this country went from being victims of an unfair culture to Karens in the space of the same year. I mean, we have to be more nuanced than this. I'm saying we can be more inclusive in our thinking. Right. It's it's not someone is not always the oppressor or the oppressed every, you know, we, we, we're striving to get something right in this country. We're always striving to get things right. At least that's what liberals have always done is to strive to change and make the country more just and more fair and less uh, and, and to, to sort of Ultimately, I assume to that transcend. you appreciate
0: that I assume that you appreciate that women can be both victims and Karens at the same time. And so the fact that both conversations happen doesn't mean that it was like a, you know, kind of a, a binary switch, either one or the other. It's just in the conversation.
3: Know, it was binary. Yeah. It was it was caricatured in the of course, you know, of course, nothing's nothing's binary, not in my mind. But uh, there was uh, you know, there was there was a sort of caricaturing that went on and and a shift in the conversation. I think just reflects um it just reflects the, the the sort of the sort of unfocused fury that that you know we go from one furor to the next from one crisis to the next instead of thinking about you know where do we want the country to go and and can we have a conversation about it without demonizing people
2: so that that is the seems like the the crux of the problem in a way because if you're on social media, everything is binary, you know it you go yeah. from you know. One outrage to, you know, a a backlash against that outrage to the next backlash. How do you kind of recalibrate? How do you get beyond that? I mean, you know, you say in your column, you know, that we shouldn't just throw up our hands. We should, we need to rededicate ourselves uh, to the project. Yeah. How does that happen?
3: Sounds great. It's hard to do. Look, I think the first thing we all have to do, all of us particularly, and everybody, I think it's very hard, it's hard for me and I I struggle with it is to understand that we're talking about small groups of people ultimately. If we're talking about people on social media screaming and yelling, if we're talking about activist groups, if we're talking about university professors, if we're talking about people blocking the the border between Canada and the United States, choose your fury. That is not the vast majority of Americans talking. And when you are talking to those groups and engaging in that conversation as a political entity, I don't believe you're speaking to the majority of Americans.
2: Right. Someone said the other, as I, I remember seeing the statistic that actually, you know, there are only 17% of Americans who are on Twitter, but their, vo- but their voices. Why is it that high? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, yeah.
3: when I started out, covering politics, you would go, you know, to the VFW hall, or you would go to the bar in the, in the town in the Dakotas or wherever you were, and you'd sit. And there was always like a, a nut at the bar. There was always like some angry guy who had too many at the bar who was more than willing to tell you about politics. He was a Pat Buchanan guy or a Ralph Nader guy or whatever, but you'd go, you know, you'd get the you'd get the full-on focus group. Can, uh, people who do focus groups will tell you the same thing. There's always somebody in the group who commandeers the conversation. What, what we have now is a very big bar, right? Like what we have now is you go on social media and you're still talking to the guy in the bar, except, you know, a, a couple thousand guys, women in the bar have connected online and suddenly it feels like you're dealing with some massive movement. You're not, you're still dealing with people. I have to remind myself of this all the time. You go on Twitter and I can't believe that person said that. I'm going to answer back. And the person has like 250 followers. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a guy in a bar. So, you know, the, the, the bar had hundred people, you know, so, so. We, we have to first be sophisticated in a way. and Maybe our kids will be more sophisticated than we were as, you know, quote unquote digital natives, but being more sophisticated about the kind of conversation that's happening around us is not reflective of the conversation in the country. And I have always, and I continue to try to think when I write about these things where my audience is and they're not on Twitter. They're, you know, they're out there living lives with kids in parts of the country Uh, that I visit but but don't live in. And I I understand that to many people in my business and in in many other businesses, it can feel, particularly in this environment where we're so obviously polarized, it can feel like a massive movement. It feels exactly the way everybody you know feels exactly the way you do. And social media represents the massive movement in the country. It doesn't. If it did, we wouldn't have incumbent parties being tossed out every two years. And what the public is continually telling both political parties is, yeah, we're going to keep throwing you out of power until you start speaking to the broad, to the vast center of the American the American society. And, and every time they think that they've won on some mandate that's non-existent.
1: Matt, before we let you go, I want to remind our listeners that when you're not writing cosmic political philosophy, as you've done here, uh, you're still just basically or have always been a political reporter. And so I want to ask you, you know, this is a a midterm election year, a lot of expectations about what's going to happen in November. But it strikes me that there's just a huge political issue looming really large for the day after Election Day, because then the pressure is going to be on, on the Democratic side, is Biden going to run again? If, if he is, is he going to let us know? If he's not, we got to know right away, because there's a lot of people out there that want that, that want to run for the office. You've known Biden for years, as you have pointed out. So is he going to run again? Is he going to let us know right after the November election what he's going to do? And um, if he doesn't, what happens? It's a really big deal. I mean, look,
3: he hasn't talked to me in a long time. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I certainly don't know his thinking. I've certainly talked to people who do. Look, my sense of it sitting here today is that the president has not made a decision and a firm decision, but believes he will run again and maybe wants to run again. I think the vast majority of people who are senior around him think it is unlikely that he will. Um, you can make of that what you will, Why? why that? Just dis- why, why they feel that way but i think it's you know i, I think it's self evident that that he is older now that uh it's a, it's a, that he was uh you know fortunate perhaps to run a campaign in the environment that he did and that you know uh, there there's an expectation in much of the party that he is a one term president if he is a one term president i agree with you i think he needs to tell people as quickly as he can after the midterms uh and it may you know may depend on the midterms he may want to have a time if it isn't if it's a disastrous midterm he may you know, that may be the the moment for him to make that clear. But
2: And then do you uh, think it's a wide open primary? I think
3: it is. You know, I think it's tricky. Uh, I think obviously when you have an incumbent vice president and an incumbent vice president who represents a lot of progress, a lot of firsts, there is going to be a little bit of trepidation for candidates to challenge her if if that field is open. But uh, I think the results of her own presidential campaign last time around and the issues she's had with rightly or, or not, with public perception during her vice presidency, would lead you to think there will be a, a bunch of people to challenge. You know, you know, In some ways, the bigger danger for the party, as we've seen in, a, in uh, we saw particularly on the Republican side and, and almost on the Democratic side, last time around, is, is too many people challenge. Right? I don't know that you want a wide open primary. I think the math gets very hard to predict and can lead to a lot of strange outcomes when you, uh, when you have 15 candidates in a field. What we may end up seeing uh, if the president steps aside and there's a little bit of trepidation about jumping in for a lot of Democrats is you may see a more traditional field of seven or eight candidates, but you will see multiple candidates. Uh, I think, you know, if Biden doesn't run, Harris will have to prove that she's a better candidate than she was last time around. And I don't think she's done a lot uh, in office to quell that that suspicion inside the party. I think the general feeling is they can do better in, in the top spot in the ticket. But there's a lot of confusion as to how and with whom.
1: If there is a, uh, even if there's a a limited field of six or seven, as opposed to 20 or 40 or however many, uh, it's going to give us plenty to obsess about all next year and into primary season the following year. In which case, um, you will be one of our go-to guys. Uh, In the meantime, Matt's piece, I reject both parties' ideas of Americanism, and I'm not the only one can be found on the Washington Post website. Matt, thanks for joining us. Great to see you guys, thank you.